All right. Well, good evening, everybody. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Rock Church. And let me welcome you to Fuel. Fuel is Rock Church's midweek Bible study. We've been going through a doozy of a book, right? The book of Revelation. It's the only book of the Bible that the moment you open it up, it promises you a blessing for going through it. You know, a lot of times we think of a lot about all the apocalyptic events that happen throughout the book of Revelation. But this book opens it up with a blessing for us. It's a blessing to go through this book. There, there are, you know, the, we get 66 books in the Bible, right? And there are promises all over the word of God that explain to us the blessing of reading, thinking about, meditating on, and putting into practice the word of God into our lives. But Revelation is the only book that I am aware of that says, read me and receive a special blessing. So tonight and through the series, we together are claiming that blessing and I pray that blessing over you. Let's take a look at that again. That, that verse is Revelation chapter one, verse three, and it reads, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. So the ones that can claim the blessing are those who read it, right? We're doing that throughout this study. We're reading it out loud, verse by verse. Then it, then it says, those who hear it. Blessed are those who read, those who hear. Those who are leaning in, so to speak, and paying close attention to what's being read with the intention of asking themselves, how does this apply to me? How can I apply this truth to my life? And then finally it says, the one that is blessed is the one who heeds or keeps these things. This means those who observe, those who put it into practice in their lives. You know, if you and I are followers of Christ, that's another way of saying we are disciples of Christ. Now think about the way being a disciple works. If you can picture the ancient Israel picture of this. Disciples would gather around their teacher, listen to what the teacher is teaching, and then they would put into practice what their master taught them. So Christ is our teacher. We're sitting around his word and his word is teaching. And we as his disciples read, hear, and then put it into practice in our life. That's so important. So as we go through this great book, I've been highlighting some takeaways. Everybody say takeaway. Takeaways are short statements that summarize something important from our study. And these are things that we should take with us. That's why they're called takeaways. They're things that we should meditate on and things that should produce change in us. We have had a four main takeaways so far from the churches that we'll reinforce here in a minute. But the point here is that we want to get the maximum benefit in our lives out of our time in the Word. I don't know about you, but I don't want to just check a box when I get in the Word. I want to get everything that I possibly can get out of it so that it can get out of me everything that, that it's supposed to get out of me, right? So that... I can glorify God the way that I was created to. to. So that, that's the whole purpose of, of the study. 
And so the way we get the maximum benefit in our lives out of our time in the word is by meditating on it and putting it into practice in our lives. Another way to say that is read, hear, and heed. Everybody say read, hear, and heed. Now, our roadmap for tonight. First up, we're going to do a review. One of my favorite teaching quotes is the following. Repetition is the mother of all learning. Also, repetition is the mother of all learning. Zig Zig Ziglar added his insight to this popular saying, and he says the following. Repetition is the mother of learning, the father of action, which makes it the architect of accomplishment. And as a teacher, this is so important. There are different ways that people learn. We all learn different ways. But repetition is one of the most important. Without getting too deep into it, repetition is the main way to transfer knowledge from our short-term memory to our long-term memory. We hear something, we kind of get it right away, but repetition helps us transfer that information from our short-term memory into our long-term memory bank. And that's when it gets inside of us. That's when we internalize it. If we really want to get something cemented in our minds and our hearts, We need to go over it multiple times before it actually becomes a part of us. And then after our uh, brief review, next we're going to spend the rest of our evening with the church at Pergamum, specifically Jesus' letter to them. And the theme of the letter, and therefore our theme for tonight, will be loyalty. Everybody say loyalty. Will be loyalty and faithfulness to Christ. And our illustration will be marriage. You see, just like a husband and wife are supposed to be totally faithful and loyal to their spouse, so we as the bride of Christ are supposed to be totally faithful to him. Go back over the different themes so far that we've had. The letter of Ephesus was all about love for Christ. The letter to Smyrna was all about suffering. And being persecuted for the name of Christ. But the theme to the letter of Pergamum is marriage. And is going to be about having an absolute loyalty and faithfulness to Christ. So that is the backdrop. Now with the stage set, let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. And then we'll get into our study. Father, we thank you again for your word. Jesus, we just invite you right now, Holy Spirit, to come upon this study. We pray right now that you will go into every single home, God, and you will bring light where there was darkness. We pray that you'll bring joy where there was anxiety and fear and depression. And we pray that you will do what only you can do, and that's speak to us and set us free by your word. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so. Review. During a time of intense persecution, John is exiled on the island of Patmos, small island in the Aegean Sea. And while he's there, he has a close encounter of the God kind. He sees Jesus in his glorified state, Jesus post-resurrection and post-ascension. He in all his glory appears to John, and John, upon seeing the full-blown holiness of God, falls at his feet as if he is dead. Jesus puts his hand on his shoulder, reassures him to fear not, 
But then he gives them his marching orders. In chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus tells John to write the things he has seen, the things that are, and then he tells them to write the things which will take place after these things. And as we have said previously, this is actually our divine outline of the book. It's a three-section outline. The things that John has seen covers the information of chapter 1 and can be summarized as the vision of the glorified Christ. The things that are covers the present tense, the age that you and I are in. That information is found in chapters 2 and 3 and can be summarized as Jesus' letter to the seven churches. This is where we are currently at, and so we will come back to it in just a moment. And then the third section in the outline is the things which will take place after these things. After what things? After the things Jesus is talking about in his seven letters to the churches. In other words, after the church age ends. It starts in chapter 4 and goes all the way to eternity. Which, by the way, we're going to see close up in chapters 21 and chapter 2, the last uh, 22, the last chapters of this book. But you and I were currently parked in the second section, the letters to the churches. We've already looked at Jesus's letters to the churches at Ephesus and Smyrna. And what we've discovered is that Jesus is evaluating each church on how they're doing. Jesus has a very definite intent for his church we are his body we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth and so jesus via the holy spirit communicates with us he also pours out his love on us so that we can do the things he wants us to do he teaches us he encourages us and he also corrects us and correction sometimes we as children we don't really like children don't like to be corrected they like to be told that everything that they're doing is great right and we're no different but it's important for us to take correction with the right spirit because correction is for our good and it's for his glory and we don't want to miss this it's for the good of the world Jesus is concerned with us who are his children who know him by faith already. But he's concerned with a world out there that doesn't know him. And his church is his agent to reach them. And so if the church, follow the logic, if the church is messed up, it'll have trouble loving the world. And if it has trouble loving the world, then our voices will be drowned out. We will sound like a clanging gong or cymbal. And we'll have trouble fulfilling our mandate as the church to go into all the world and preach the good news about Jesus and make disciples. So Jesus is concerned about his church for multiple reasons. And so these messages are for churches, but they are also for individuals. He who has an ear. Do you have an ear? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. These letters are written directly to each one of us. And so we've had four takeaways so far from these letters. Two takeaways from Ephesus and two from Smyrna. If you remember from Ephesus, their two takeaways were, number one, stay true to the Bible, which is what they were doing. But then their second takeaway was what they weren't doing. Their second takeaway is never lose your first love in the process. Always keep your love for Jesus strong. And then the two takeaways from Smyrna. Number one, 
be prepared to remain faithful to Jesus even if persecution breaks out, even if you're suffering for his name. Don't quit on him. And then the second takeaway from Smyrna, don't forget your brothers and sisters that are suffering. There are Christians suffering all over the world for the name of Christ. We don't want to forget about them. So that's where we've been. But next up on Jesus's list is the church located at Pergamum. Let's read what he has to say. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. It reads, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Okay, so here we have the third church on the Lord's list, Pergamum. The name means thoroughly married. And as we will see, that is significant in this letter. Little background on it. It's the most northernmost city of all seven, located about 70 miles north of Smyrna. And it was a gorgeous city. It was extremely beautiful. And it was in an area of Turkey that's gorgeous. And it was off the path of the normal trade routes. And so there wasn't a lot of commerce to alter its beauty. It was one of the three royal cities of that area. Ephesus was the great political center. Smyrna was known for business. But Pergamum was known for religion and for learning. It was like a combination of a learning center, a medical center, and a religious center. There were pagan temples all over. But the two most prominent were the temple built to Caesar Augustus, which was, a cor of course, a place of emperor worship and it was also home to a temple to the god asclepios asclepios is a god of medicine and in particular the greek god of healing so it was a place that was famous as a healing center but unfortunately it couldn't back up its claims because the healing wasn't genuine that happened there because it was all rooted in the demonic if you are familiar with Asclepios, his symbol is of a serpent. And we get, we, this is where we get our symbol for the American Medical Association, by the way. But his symbol is of a serpent on a rod and is taken from, but is actually a perversion of Moses' brazen serpent in Numbers 21 that foreshadowed Christ. Remember Jesus' famous words to Nicodemus in John 3. Before he uttered 3.16, he uttered, John 3, 14 and 15. And he said this to Nicodemus. 
As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Isn't it amazing how connected all of it is? So here we are in Pergamos. It's a center for false religion. It's a place where people go to get healed. And it's also a place of education. It has an incredible library. This is an interesting fact here. Uh, if you are familiar with ancient history, then you're familiar with the Library of Alexandria. And, and the Library of Alexandria is famous as being one of the most significant learning centers in the ancient world. Alexandria is in Africa. But the library that was there that's so famous actually came from Pergamos. Mark Anthony actually gave it to Cleopatra as a gift. Interesting stuff. I didn't know that until I studied this out. But anyway, Pergamum is a beautiful city, and it's a cultured city, but it is a thoroughly pagan city that is bound by false religion, false medicine, and ignorant learning. Learning that's godless when it comes to the true God, Jehovah. So it's a beautiful city to the eye, but I believe the spiritual oppression that was there was palpable. And so picture yourself if you're the church in that environment. That's the church that Jesus is writing to. Let's go ahead and break that down. First off, as we're looking at the seven elements, as we do for each of these letters, the first element is the name of the church. Remember, the name of the church gives us the theme of the letter. Pergamum, we said, means thoroughly married. And at its essence, marriage is a union, right? It's a joining together. And so as the church, we are supposed to be the espoused bride of Christ, joined to him and him alone. You see where this study's going. And we will see this is a problem for the church at Pergamum. The second element is the title of Christ. He calls himself the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. What does the sharp two-edged sword represent in Scripture? Well, we know by looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, as well as Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, the sharp two-edged sword in Scripture means the Word of God. The Word of God is going to be significant in the letter to this church. Now, the commendation. Jesus tells them, commendation is the things that they're doing well. He tells them, I know where you dwell. I know the environment that you're living in. You live where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So remember, this was a false, a pagan religious center. And it was steeped in false religion. And on the backside of every false religion is none other than the one who wants to be God, but is the false one, the liar, Satan, right? Jesus says that Satan actually has his throne set up there at Pergamum. Wow. How would you like to be in a city where Satan's headquarters were set up? But these folks held fast to Jesus' name. In a place where you were supposed to say Caesar is Lord, they stuck with Jesus' Lord. They had a temple to Caesar on one side of them, 
pushing them to compromise with emperor worship. And then they had a temple to the false god Asclepios on the other side, pushing them to compromise there. And so there was a lot of pressure on these people. Sound familiar? Today, nothing's changed. The church today, if you name the name of Christ, you have a lot of pressure to compromise, just as much pressure as they did. But look at Jesus's commendation. He said they did not deny the faith. They would not budge on the core truths of Christianity. Even when this witness Antipas, this guy is unknown to us in history. We've never heard, heard of him, but obviously God knows who he is because he was his faithful witness. They did not let the killing of him, the martyrdom of him, stop their worship. Those are good things, right? But what's his concern? He says, you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Remember Balaam from the Old Testament? And Jesus says, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Also, you have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So let's start with Balaam first. We went over Nicolaitans really good last time. So if you missed that, that's in our last session. But we're going to focus on Balaam tonight. Now, we remember Balaam. Uh, most of us remember Balaam because he was the one that had, that God literally had to make a donkey talk to him because he was so thick-headed and so imperceptive. Imagine that, an imperceptive prophet. But his heart and his motives weren't right. And that's why he was uh, imperceptive. But if we remember the core of that story is that Balak wanted Balaam to curse the children of Israel. Balak was a king of Moab and he was afraid that the Israelites were going to just wipe them out. And so he knew that Balaam somehow had this power to curse. And so he tried to hire him, pay him a lot of money and Balaam wanted the money. See, Balaam was wicked. He wanted the money. But every time he tried to curse them, he couldn't. Because, and here's a huge thing that we need to remember, what God has blessed, nobody can curse. And you are blessed. If you have named the name of Jesus, if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, then you are blessed. And because you are blessed, curses can't stand against you. But, he taught Balak, though, even though he couldn't curse Israel, he taught Balak something. He taught them that he could get the Israelites to curse themselves. You see, his strategy to Balak was thus. He had Balak send the Moabite women to the Israelite camp. And their job was to pull Israel away from God. That was their mission. Their job was to get the Israelite men to commit sexual immorality with them first. But also then to have Israel commit spiritual adultery by luring them into worshiping their false gods. Sexuality and idol worship were part together in the ancient cultures like that. And so if they could get them to sleep with them, they could get them to also turn their hearts away from God another way. By getting them to participate in these pagan rituals. And that is flat out idolatry, right? So this man Balak, he was evil on another level. You see, he, he, 
he is so devious. And, and, and this is why, this is why Balaam receives such harsh commentary in the word of God. Balak, the king, pulled this information out of Balaam because Balaam wanted to make money. Okay? And so that is about as wicked as it comes. Twisting spiritual knowledge and manipulating the situation to get an outcome that serves your selfish needs. That's the sin of Balaam there, right? And that's why he receives such a harsh commentary in the word of God. He knows that Israel is blessed and what God has blessed, no man can curse. But he also knows how things work in the spiritual realm. And he knows what practices are an abomination to God. And so he manipulates that knowledge, gets Israel to curse themselves, so to speak. And by then being joined sexually to the Moabite women and worshiping their idols at the same time, they're being unfaithful to God. They are committing spiritual adultery, which would cause judgment to come down upon them. It's a sad thing. Their enemies couldn't curse them. But by their actions, they curse themselves. You know, there's a spiritual principle there in that the, the devil can't curse us, but he does tempt us so that we can cause our own trouble. How many people know that a lot of times we are our worst enemy? Now, fast forward to the church in Pergamum. There were those who were saying it was good to worship Jesus but he was on par with the other gods there in the city. Okay? You see the correlation between them and what Balaam did? They were, uh, uh, Balaam was telling them that it was okay to worship Yahweh, Jehovah, but also worship the other pagan deities. That's what was going on here in Pergamum. There was pressure, right? They were being told by these people that had this sin of Balaam that, hey, all paths lead to God, right? Just depends on, you know, just as long as you're sincere. Does that sound familiar? All religions, they said, are just different methods for achieving the same goal. So what's happening here is that you have the world influencing the church to be like them instead of the church influencing the world to come to Christ who is the only one who is worthy to be worshipped because he's the only one who died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead with all power and authority. Only Jesus can say that. So that was a big problem in that city, and we know it's a big problem in our day as well. We want to be faithful and loyal to Jesus. You see the marriage parallel there? We want to be faithful and loyal to Jesus above all else above everything else that's out there and then his other concern like we talked about were the Nicolaitans we talked a lot about them but those were people who said because of grace we can sin all we want which we saw that's a perversion of the beautiful doctrine of grace so that's his concern with them that they need to fix he his exhortation now says therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And if you think about it, that's easy enough. Jesus is just saying, repent. You're heading down the wrong path. 
change your mind on your pluralistic thinking. For us, we need to seriously check and see what we allow to influence us. We have to understand that we live in an age of information where we are barraged, not daily, not just hourly, but moment by moment, we are being barraged with messages and images. And we have to decide what are we going to allow to influence us. Is the word of God supreme? Or do we listen to a bunch of other voices as well and give them equal credence? Voices that when they speak sound good, but when you put it up against the word of God, we see that are diametrically opposed to God and his ways. Jesus has given us the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You see how it all connects together? The sword of the spirit is the antidote for this problem at Pergamum. God's given it to us so that we can aggressively go after those things. And so we need to be like where, where God was with Adam in the Garden of Eden. God asked Adam, where are you? Not because he didn't know. Of course, God knew exactly where Adam was. But Adam didn't really know where he was at. Adam was kind of messed up at that time, right? He wanted, by asking that question, he wanted Adam to check himself so he would know. That's what we need to do. Where are you at, Adam? Where are you at? That's what God is saying to us. What area of our lives have we let the world infiltrate our thinking and our behavior? That's Pergamum. That's the sin of Pergamum. That's being joined to something other than Christ. And we, maybe more than any generation, have to fight against that. Now, are we ever going to be perfect? No. But what is our posture? To believe that there is freedom in Christ from those things and from that belief with God's help to fight against those things from that sword from Jesus' mouth, to fight against them until they no longer have any hold on us or in us. Then Jesus says, He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says this in every letter. Here is our built-in pause. If we were watching a movie, this would be our pause button. This is where we should pause when we read this. And we should take some time and stop and reflect over what's been said and then make some decisions. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. What is the Spirit saying to you right now? Let the Holy Spirit direct us on what steps we need to take. What do we have going on in our lives that are not pleasing to him? Where have we allowed the sin of Pergamum to enter in where uh, we know what the word says, but we decide to go with the world says instead? That's the pointed question that the Spirit is asking each one of us. Now, the next one is the overcomer's promise. I love that. Jesus starts on a positive note and always says what they're doing good. And then he ends on a positive to him who overcomes to him. I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. OK, so there's a couple things in there. Hidden manna. What's that all about? Well, remember, 
Scripture interprets Scripture, right? And remember we talked about how much the Old Testament is plugged into the book of Revelation? Even tonight, we've already looked at Balaam and Balak, a big part of the Old Testament. And now we're looking at manna, a reference to something that happened in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 16. If you remember, manna is what God used to feed the children of Israel with when they were in the wilderness for 40 years. But just like everything else in the Old Testament, it was all shadows that pointed to a fulfillment in Jesus. In John chapter 6, Jesus explains to us the fulfillment of what manna means. He explains that the manna was a reference to him. He says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. Just an interesting thought on manna. Manna got its name because the Israelites, the Jewish people, they saw it. They knew it came down from heaven, but they couldn't tell what it was. So the word manna means what is it? That's kind of the same name that they gave to Jesus at the time as well. What is it? Here it was. It was clear he came down from heaven, but they didn't know who he was. You see what a perfect picture the Old Testament is of the New Testament. But he says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Have you eaten of this bread? Is the question. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ for salvation? He says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. Jesus is saying he is the true manna that comes down from heaven. So he's saying here that believers in Jesus get to feast on him via his word, right? Remember, the word of God is significant in this letter, and that's what we're seeing here. Feasting on Jesus, which is his word, and feasting with Jesus in the word, right? Here's the deal. This is so important. Spending time with Jesus in his word. I'm convinced that if the body of Christ would really get a hold of this and start partaking in this hidden manna, this feasting on the word, that many of our failings as his body would begin to be automatically corrected. Now, that's the hidden manna, but the next reference is really interesting. He says, he will give the overcomer a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. What is this white stone? It's really interesting, but the white stone was pre prevalent in ancient history, when you were given a white stone, it meant something. I really like the way the Believer's Bible uh, commentary explains it. He says, it's, it says, the white stone has been explained in many ways. It was a token of acquittal in a legal case. So if you were found guilty, I mean, if you were, if you were accused of something but found innocent, you were given a white stone as a token of acquittal. It was also a symbol of victory in an athletic contest. So if you won uh, a, an athletic contest, one of your symbols of victory, kind of like a trophy, was this white stone. It, it was an expression of welcome given by a host to his guests. It's telling somebody that they are accepted and acceptable. You see the correlation here? It seems clear that this is a reward given by the Lord to the overcomer and expressing individual approval by him. 
Now, what about the new name? Alfred says that the new name indicates accepted acceptance by God and title to glory. So that's the letter to the church at Pergamum. Those are the seven elements. And we always like to look at the three levels of application on these letters. Remember, that's local, universal, as well as personal. We've already looked at the local level. This letter was addressing a real situation at the church at Pergamum in the first century. And as you look at the church throughout her history, this is the universal level of application, you can see that this letter was important to every age. Every age had that pressure to not be 100% devoted to Christ. And I don't know that it's ever been truer than in our age. Pluralism, which is what that's called, it's entered into various parts of the church. And pluralism is unfaithfulness to God. What does pluralism mean? Pluralism is when you say there are multiple sources of authority. In the world, there are many worldviews that claim authority. That's normal. But what's not normal is if somebody claims there are multiple sources of authority in the church. In the church, there's only one source of authority. That's Jesus himself and his word. That's why Jesus reveals himself to these compromising people as the word of God. What Jesus is saying in this letter is that pluralistic thinking is infecting his church. And this is not just uh, um, no big deal. This is a betrayal on the level of a spouse betraying another. This is pretty heavy, actually. The theme of this letter is marriage, right? And you and I, that's a metaphor for us. We're joined to Christ. We're espoused to Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And if we try and say that there are other paths, we're being disloyal. And in fact, we're committing spiritual adultery. That's why Balaam and Balak were brought up. The children of Israel, the Bible says, joined themselves to that false god, Baal Peor. They were supposed to be married to God, and they cheated on him with the devil. That's a huge issue in the church in 21st century America. There are ministers right now and key influential people who have previously named the name of Jesus, but now have fallen away from the truth. You might have been grieved like I was to hear about the most recent example, which, was, which is the lead singer of the Christian band Hawk Nelson, Jonathan Steingard, the lead singer of Hawk Nelson, uh, who has songs that have ministered to me during times of trial. He recently renounced his faith and says he no longer even believes in God. Now, I'm not mentioning him to slam him. I know that I'm not privy to the things that he's been through. And I know each person is on their own journey. And I'm praying for him that whatever has happened to help to get him to fall off track, that he'll get back on track, that he will have an encounter with God via the Holy Spirit that will just shake him to his core and he will have that joy of following Jesus. So I don't bring him up to slam him, but it is a warning because there's a lot of this going on. And a lot of time it's with influential people. And we have to talk about it because folks like this are influential and that means they lead others with them.
Now, the pattern that uh, this usually takes, it starts off with them um, losing their fervor for God, drifting away, kind of going through the motions, right? Eventually, it loses its reality, and they end up eventually denying that the Bible is the Word of God. And once they deny that the Bible is the Word of God, it's just a, not too long afterwards, they almost always deny the faith. And the faith, when I say the faith, that's the body of truth that one must believe to be a Christian. In other words, Jesus being the only way to heaven. In other words, you know, Jesus being God in the flesh. All those things. The Word of God being the Word of God, right? And not man-made, right? Once they deny that the Bible is the Word of God, they start denying other parts of the faith. And eventually, and I've seen it, it's been sad to me, um, losing their faith completely. And a lot of times their lives end um, or they go through a season of really bad shipwreck. So people who deny the word soon deny that Jesus is the only way. But I want to zero in on that. Jesus was crystal clear when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. In other words, if we want to get to God, there aren't many paths. There's only one way, and it's Jesus. And it's because he is the one who paid the price for the sins of the world. He alone did it. And so he alone can reconcile man to God. We talked about this in an earlier session. We're not mad that there's only one way to heaven. We're glad that there is a way. Amen. We're not mad because there's only one way to get our sins cleansed. <laughs> We're glad because there is a way to get our sins cleansed. So, we have the local level of application. We have the universal level. And finally, we have the personal level where the Holy Spirit puts his crosshairs on us personally and says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So what is the Spirit saying here to each one of us? Individually, we need to ask ourselves, am I being loyal? Am I being faithful? As spouses are supposed to be loyal to each other, are we being loyal to Christ? He deserves our loyalty. Amen? He deserves our faithfulness. We also need to ask, are we behaving the way his bride should behave? Or do we think it's okay to do anything we want, say anything we want, watch anything we want, act any way that we want? In other words, the big takeaway here for us is to do what we've called healthy self-analysis. And in this case, we're looking to see if our hearts are divided. I don't know about you, but I don't want a divided heart. I want to be totally loyal and totally committed to Jesus. I fail in this area. Uh, one of the things as we grow in our walk in our relationship with Christ, the closer we get to him, the more we realize how much we need him. Amen. How much we need his grace. And so I fail in this area all the time, but I'm growing. Amen. And one of the things we can do is just go to God in prayer and just be honest with him and invite him to change us from the inside out in this area. We can't change ourselves, right? 
But if we have the desire and if we want to start calling out and crying out to God and saying, God, change me from this out. I want to give you all my heart. I want to tell you, Jesus, nothing is off limits. You know, sometimes (laughs) as humans, we have our relationship with Jesus and then we have certain areas in our heart that we have closed off to him. Certain areas that we say, uh, no, let's not talk about that. Let's not go over there, Jesus. Maybe later, maybe at another time, but I don't really want to address that. I really don't want to deal with those things right now, right? What we want to do is we want to fling open the doors of our heart and say nothing is off limits. So as I close in prayer, let's go and invite him to do just that. Father, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we thank you. We thank you, God, that you are faithful to us. You are so loyal to us. You are so passionate about us. God, help us um, to really, truly understand what it means. We can't even understand what it means to be loyal and faithful to you without your help. So we come to you from that posture, God. Even just teach us what it means to be faithful. And right now, God, we, by a step of faith, open up all the doors of our hearts. We say, Jesus, you have freedom to go there and work on with us anything you see that you want to work on, God. Nothing is off limits to you. We love you, Jesus. We trust you. We know that as we open up those areas, some of them are very sensitive, that you're trustworthy and you're gentle. And so now, God, we recommit our lives to you. We recommit our hearts to you. Help us to have an undivided heart. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we've got Pergamum knocked out. Next week, we're going to be looking at another fascinating church. That's the church at Thyatira. The church at Thyatira has apparently gone to a whole other level. Pergamum, we could say, is a compromising church. But the church at Thyatira is a corrupt church. They were a mess. And in Christ's message to them, we're going to glean a lot of great nuggets. So until next time, this is Pastor Chris signing off. May God richly bless you and yours.